such a such a great passage, uh, perhaps familiar to many of us as well. But let me pray that we might just grasp how significant uh, this event is. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you that you are the God who's revealed yourself to us. We thank you that you are the God who's acted in history. And we can read of the things you've done that teach us great truths so that we might know just how great you and your son are. And we pray that we might know this by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, how are you at, uh, at waiting? I don't know if you're a person that likes waiting or not. Personally, I hate waiting. I'm a bit impatient. I'm growing in it, but I hate it. Uh, you know those people who aren't bothered by being told to, to wait? You know, whatever it is they're told to wait for, they're waiting for a train or they're waiting for their meal, or they're waiting for a new bit of furniture that, that now it's been delayed for months and months. Uh, and when those people are told to wait, they kind of accept it, and they just smile, and they get on with their lives patiently. I don't get those people. Uh, I, I've never been a good waiter. I hate waiting. And for all the excitement of us kind of kicking off in Acts chapter 1 last week, uh, basically what, what the apostles of Jesus were told to do in Acts chapter 1 is wait. See, look back at verse 4 of Acts chapter 1. Look back, chapter 1, verse 4. Make sure you've got a Bible there. If you don't, stick your hand up. You'll need one, especially today. And uh, Dave will bring one if you need one. But look back at Acts chapter 1, verse 4. And remember what's happened for the last six weeks of the lives of these apostles. See, for the last six weeks, they, they've, they've seen Jesus arrested over the last six weeks. We need a Bible over there too, Dave. Um, they, they've seen Jesus arrested in the last six weeks. They've seen Jesus flogged and beaten. They've seen their leader. See, these, these apostles gave themselves to following Jesus and they've seen their leader be uh, crucified and then killed. And then they've seen the excitement of Jesus being resurrected. And then we heard last week they had Jesus with them for 40 days. He opened up the Old Testament scriptures for them. So there's all this excitement that's gone on for the apostles. And in Acts chapter 1, verse 4, while Jesus was together with them, with the apostles, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for the Father's promise. All the excitement, and then they have to wait. And it would have driven me crazy, if I'm honest. And it's all a bit of an anticlimax as you come to the end of Acts chapter 1. All this is going on, and now I'll just, just wait. You know, sit still. But in Acts chapter 2, that waiting for the Father's promise, it comes to an end. But here's the thing. The wait has been so much longer than those 10 days or so the apostles had to wait. So much longer than the time the apostles had to sit tight. You see, all that we'll see in this chapter is that God's people have been waiting for the Father's promise since the day of the prophet Joel. And they've been waiting for the Father's promise since the day of King David 1,000 years earlier. And they've been waiting since the time of Abraham 2,000 years earlier. And really what the whole world has been waiting for since the beginning of the creation is God's promise in installing and declaring Jesus as Lord and Christ over everything. So here's what we need to realize about Acts chapter 2. The point of Acts chapter 2, what we learn about Acts chapter 2, is that Jesus is being declared as Lord and Christ over everything, and that changes everything forever. And that's not an exaggeration. That's not the preacher getting excited. That is the reality. That is what we'll see. So please don't view this as we read Acts chapter 2 like the installation of of King Charles III. See, put, put your hand up if you know when King Charles' coronation is, just out of interest. 
Don't be shy. Put your hand up. A couple. I thought we might get a couple more. It's May 6th. I only know because I had to Google it. See, put your hand up if you think King Charles being installed as king is going to significantly impact your life. Good, no hands. I thought if someone puts their hands up, I'll, I'll pray for you. Put your hand up if you'd rather William be king instead of... No, don't do that. You see, this, Acts chapter 2, is not that. This, this event we're about to read about changes everything. It declares once and for all, beyond all doubt and with all certainty, that Jesus is Lord and King over everything. And our challenge will be, in reading this chapter, our challenge will be just grasping how significant that is, just how huge this actually is. So having said all that, let's jump into the chapter. Make sure, again, you've got your Bible there. We'll we'll cover plenty of stuff and we'll have to glean over the verses together. So make sure you've got your Bible and we're up to point one now in your outlines, the Pentecost event. So look with me, verse 1, Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had arrived, and, and just so you know, Pentecost means uh, 50th day. So this, this was an annual festival uh, that, that was held uh, 50 days after the Passover. It was a regular part of Jewish life. But when the day, when that day of Pentecost had arrived, they, the disciples, were all together in one place. And suddenly a sound like that of a violent rushing wind came from heaven and it filled the whole house where they were staying. And tongues like flames of fire that were divided appeared to them and rested on each one of them. Then they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in different languages as the Spirit gave them ability for speech. And what we need to realize from the very beginning is that this event was a once-off unrepeatable, extraordinary event. And if it all sounds a bit weird, and if you try to imagine the scene, if it all sounds a bit weird, that's the point. It is odd. This is extraordinary. So imagine the whole event like this. You know, there were the disciples, they were all together in one house, in one room, and then this, you know, this supernatural event takes place, and there's something like a violent wind. We don't know exactly what it is. It's like a violent wind, and something like flames of fire comes and rests on each one of them. And verse 4, the disciples at that point, they're filled with God's Holy Spirit. And in being filled with the Holy Spirit, they begin to speak in all sorts of different languages. All sorts of languages. And as they're speaking, imagine it like this. They're in this house, in this room, but as they're speaking, they, they spill out into the streets where, where there's a crowd. And in the, the crowd, if you have a look at verse 5, this crowd, verse 5, was made up of devout Jews, uh, devout Jewish men from every nation under heaven. So they've come from all over the place, these Jewish men. They're there as a crowd. They're there for the event of Pentecost. And as this crowd hears this event, as this all takes place, the crowd is shocked. And why are they shocked? Well, look at verse 7. Look at verse 7. Then they, the crowd, were astonished and they were amazed, saying, Look, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? That is from Galilee. How is it that each one of us can hear in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, those who live in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, and the name places go on. And so what you can't miss with this event as we read it is just how extraordinary it is. That the crowds, as they heard it and saw it, they were amazed. They were even confused. They were perplexed, if you look at verse 12. And this is really important. The crowd was perplexed, not because they didn't understand what the disciples were saying as they spoke. 
They were perplexed because they did understand. See, sadly, some people get this very wrong. They, they turn Acts chapter 2 into some sort of tongues-speaking experience of unintelligible words and, and this kind of, kind of mystical spiritual speaking. But as you read it, it's really obvious that this extraordinary event involves this crowd that have come from all these other nation groups. They speak all these different languages. And as the crowd hear the disciples speaking in their own language, they're shocked because they they think, well, they're Galileans. How can these men from Galilee speak our language? Speak all these different languages. It's it's impossible. It's extraordinary. That's what's going on here. But as interesting as it all is, what does it mean? And again, sadly, at this point, some start to make all sorts of wild guesses about what's going on with this event. They they read verses one to thirteen and uh, one to twelve, sorry, and they think, oh, what's you know, what is it? And let's let's try to speculate. But even the crowd doesn't know what's going on. So look again at verse twelve. The crowd they were perplexed and they said to one another, "What could this be?" They knew it was significant, but they didn't know what it was. Verse thirteen. Some just figured they were drunk. Uh, personally, I'm yet to meet a drunk that suddenly becomes fluent in French or Arabic or Dutch. Maybe the language of slur, but that's as close as it gets. Well, thankfully, the Apostle Peter tells us what this means. And he tells us what it means in verses 14 to 36. And what Peter now says is what's important. Please don't get caught up with the events. We've got to be careful we don't get caught up with what happens in what we're told and and what's described to us. Because if you get caught up in that, you miss the point. Peter tells us the point. And so we're up to point two now. What does this mean? Peter's explanation. And you'll remember from last week when Phil preached that uh, Jesus had opened up the minds of the disciples, of the apostles to the Old Testament. Uh, Jesus gave them a master class in how to understand the Old Testament was actually all about Jesus. And uh, what we get in these, in these verses is Peter's masterclass learning. He, he's sharing his learning with us. And these verses are so rich, so spend time going over them at home. We can't dig into all the detail. But the first part of Peter's explanation is to remind the crowd and his hearers about the prophet Joel. So again, imagine it like this. This extraordinary event takes place and everyone in the crowd acknowledges that something amazing has just taken place. Some sneer, some kind of mock. And then the Apostle Peter stands up in that crowd. Verse 14. He stands up and he declares to the crowd, No, 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 no. These men aren't drunk. Don't be silly. It's only 9 in the morning. Don't come to 9 a.m. church. Drink. Yeah. You know, perhaps by 11 a.m. in the middle of a summer, Sydney summer, and, and, and perhaps during the Christmas holidays, some might have had too much to drink by 11 a.m. But these men aren't drunk. It's nine in the morning. No, no, look at verse 16. Look at what he says. Verse 16, Peter says, On the contrary, this, what's happening, is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. And if you remember the book of Joel, we looked at it in our gospel teams last year, part of Joel's words was a warning about the coming judgment of God. What Joel called the day of the Lord, where where God would begin his final judgment of the world. But Joel's words, if you remember them, they were also an invitation for God's people to repent, to, to turn back to God. And the promise was, in doing so, one day God's people would receive God's spirit. And what Peter is saying here is, now is that day. Now is the day of the Lord. 
It's the last days where God begins his final judgment. And it's also the last days where God offers repentance and his spirit to people. And so Peter then quotes uh, Joel, he quotes him in verse 17. He talks about God pouring out his spirits. And he talks about how in the last day, all of God's people would prophesy and see visions. Uh, that is, they would speak the truth about God and speak God's word. And they would understand the things of God all because of the Spirit. And Joel said that this would be for all people. So again, look at verse 17. Look again at verse 17. It doesn't matter if you're, if you're young or old or slave or free. It's for all people. And it would be for all nations, which is, which is why the disciples speak in all those different sorts of languages. You see, these devout Jews have come from all over the known world of that time to Jerusalem. They come from all their own nation groups. They speak their own language. And yet here, they're all hearing in their own language. It's a fulfillment of that, prom- of that prophecy. It was symbolic of God bringing his scattered Jewish people back as one, back to himself. And not just the Jewish people, but look at verse 21. This is key for us because most of us don't have Jewish background. Look at verse 21. But now everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And again, there are so many riches to see in the Joel quote. We can't explore them. But the point Peter is making is really simple. The incredible day of the Lord that Joel spoke about, that day that God's people had been waiting hundreds and thousands of years to come, has now come. With the coming of God's Spirit in this way and with the crowd seeing it happen like they did with their own eyes, that day, Peter is saying to the crowd, now begins the day of the Lord. Now the last days are here. It's a new age, it's a new era, and it's massive. But... If Peter is telling this crowd that now is the day of the Lord, it begs the question, well, who is the Lord? And and what is the name? See, it says everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. Well, what name of the Lord can we call on for everyone to be saved? And this is the next part of uh, Peter's explanation. And our next point, this Jesus is the Lord and Messiah. And again, these these verses are so rich. Uh, It's a big chapter today. So read them again when you get home. But Peter's point to the crowd is, again, quite simple. He's saying this Jesus to the crowd. He's saying this man that you've probably heard about. You must have heard about him. Uh, you, you probably met him. You probably heard this Jesus come and, and speak to you about the things of God at some point. When you were here for Passover last year, you probably heard about Jesus and, and heard him speak. And Peter is saying that Jesus, he's the Lord. He's the Messiah. And to prove the point, Peter gives reason after reason for us to believe him. So very quickly, and you'll have to work with me here. Look at your Bibles. Look at verse 22. So verse 22, Peter says to the crowd, he says, Listen to these words. This Jesus, the Nazarene, was a man appointed, uh, a man pointed out to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs that God did among you through him, just as you yourselves know. And so Peter's saying to the crowd, You know that this Jesus of Nazarene did miracles and did incredible things. Everyone knows that. Nobody denies that. And the reason he did those miraculous things is because he's the Lord. Or then look at verse 23. Peter says, verse 23, Sure, you 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 guys used lawless men to nail Jesus to the cross. And that man, Jesus, was killed. He did die. But, But that was according to God's plan. 
And then look at verse 24. Peter says, God raised this Jesus up and he put an end to death. Which, by the way, Peter is saying, is, is exactly what David had said would happen in Psalm 16. Do you remember, Peter is saying to the Jewish crowd, do you remember what Psalm 16 says? How God had promised that he would not let his Holy One, the Lord, the Messiah, see decay. The Holy One is Jesus, is what he's saying to the crowd. And so verse 32, look at verse 32, Peter declares, verse 32, God has resurrected this Jesus and we are all witnesses of this. We know it. We've seen it. It's happened. And here are the really important verses. Keep working with me, please. Look at what Peter says in verse 33. Again, make sure you've got your Bible there. Peter says, verse 33, Therefore, since he, Jesus, has been exalted to the right hand of God and has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he, Jesus, has poured out what you both see and hear. And this this is the climax of Peter's explanation. He's saying to the crowd, that extraordinary thing you've just seen and witnessed, that display of the Spirit of God and all that wonder, and, and the question you're saying is, what does this all mean? Well, Peter is saying, it means that Jesus is Lord. It means he's the Christ. It means that God has exalted him to the right hand. It means that Jesus has now poured out this Spirit because he is the Lord. You see, we've got to be really careful with Acts chapter 2. Yes, this is a chapter that marks the permanent arrival of God's Spirit on the people of God. And it is the fulfillment of Joel's prophecy where you get this, this temporary display with, with the disciples speaking in all these different languages. And it is miraculous. It is incredible. It's all because of the Spirit. But the main point of the whole event is to show the crowd and tell the world that Jesus is Lord. That's the point. And just in case we've missed it, Peter gives us the punchline in verse 36. This is what Acts chapter 2 is about. Verse 36, Peter concludes, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know with certainty that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, by the way, he doesn't hold his words, doesn't hold back his words, God has made this Jesus both Lord and Messiah. That's the point of Acts chapter 2. And doesn't that news just just blow your mind or does it like i said at the beginning our challenge in reading this chapter is just grasping how significant it is for most of us here we're used to the idea of jesus being lord we're used to the idea of jesus being the messiah god's promised king he's fulfilled all the old testament yes we know that we know that all god's promises have come to fulfillment in jesus yes how lovely but have we, have we grasped just how significant this is? And this is point three now. You see, what is your response? How do you respond to the installment and declaration that this Jesus, who lived and died and rose again 2,000 years ago, is both Lord and Messiah over everything? Uh, some of you might remember Prince Leonard of Hutt River in Western Australia. Does anyone remember that, Prince Leonard? Yeah, a couple of hands. Uh, he died a few years ago now. But uh, after a dispute with the Australian government in the 1970s, uh, this man declared his 75 square metre of property a sovereign state. And uh, he even installed himself as Prince, Prince Leonard. 
And he gave his family royal titles. My daughters would love this. They'd be princesses. Uh, He even made a flag. Uh, He had a national seal. He minted his own coin. He even created his own passport and supposedly used that passport to travel internationally. I don't know if that's true or not. But you hear that story and you hear that declaration, you know, Prince Leonard of Hutt River. And you you laugh mostly because there is a seriousness to it. But, But mostly it's laughable. It doesn't mean anything. And like I said at the beginning, you know, Charles III being declared as king doesn't really mean anything for us. Even if some dictator rose through our ranks and devised a coup and made us all subject to him as the people of Australia, with all that would mean for our lives and for our families, none of that comes anywhere close to how significant it is to have Jesus as king over everything. You see, the Father's promise has come. Jesus has lived, died, risen, exalted the right hand of God. And in Acts chapter, and in Acts chapter 2, he's now sent his spirit, declared once for all that he's Lord for all eternity. And so how do we respond? What do you do with that? Look at how the crowd responds. Look at verse, uh, verse 37. When the crowd heard this, they came under deep conviction. Or literally, the language is there, the, the, the literal language is they were, they were pierced to the heart or, or cut to the heart. You see, the response is not, oh, Jesus is you know, now Prince of Hot River. You know, how lovely. It's not, oh, that's nice. All those you know, hundreds and thousands of years of waiting for the Lord and Messiah to come and for the Father's promise to, to come true. It's happened. Oh, isn't, you know, isn't that nifty? No, no, they came under deep conviction. They, they grasped the significance of the event. They realized that this Jesus is the eternal judge, that he reigns over everything, that nothing is outside his sovereign power. You see, how do you respond? If this news of Jesus as Lord and Messiah has never pierced your heart, then you've never actually understood how important this event is. And for some of us, that sense of deep conviction has come and gone at times, and that's normal. That, that's why we keep reminding each other about Jesus as Lord and King. That's, that's why we're preaching what we're preaching now, because we forget. But if you've never felt such conviction, then you've never truly understood how big this event is. It's not Prince Leonard. It's not Charles. This is the one whom one day you will stand before and give account for your life. This is the one who who made you and he owns you because he made you, whether you like it or not. And the crowd, they got this. They were pierced to the heart. And so they asked Peter, look again at verse 37. Look again what they say. They asked Peter, what must we do? And Peter says, verse 38, look at verse 38. He says, repent and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And you've probably seen uh, those period war movies uh, before, you know, when a soldier gets kind of pierced by an arrow in one of those movies and it kind of you know, digs into his flesh. One of the worst things that man can do when he gets hit by an arrow is try to pull it out himself. You know, the, the, the triangular arrowhead just makes the wound worse as you try to pull it out. Your, your sinews get tied up in, in the spearhead and the pain gets worse and worse. There's nothing you can do to pull it out in your own strength. That's why they kind of snap it if you see it in the movies. Well, as this crowd was pierced to the heart, there is nothing they could do 
in their own strength. They knew they were hopeless, which is why Peter says to them, what you must do is repent. You stop trying to rule your life as king and humbly come to the king for forgiveness. It's only in the name of Jesus as Lord and Messiah that you can be saved. And so the question for us from Acts chapter 2 is really obvious. Have you repented? Some of you here never have. And maybe today for the first time you're thinking to yourself, what if this Jesus is both Lord and Messiah, king over everything? What if one day I'll stand before the one who made me and owns me and he'll call me to account? If that is you, in the words of verse 40 from Peter 2,000 years ago, I strongly urge you, be saved from this corrupt generation. This world would not ultimately deliver. This world belongs to Jesus. He is king. Nothing can change that. It's fact. It's happened. And look at the promise for those who repent. You will be forgiven. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That promise is for you. It's for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord Jesus. So if you have not yet repented and you are being pierced in the heart now to consider Jesus as Lord and Messiah, what are you waiting for? Repent. Get baptized. We can baptize you next week. Today, if you want. If you want to make Jesus your Lord and King. The day Jesus comes back, that is too late. You see, 3,000 who were there in the crowd that day when Peter spoke and were pierced to the heart, they repented. And they were baptized. And it's an incredible work of God. 3,000 who made Jesus their King and Lord and received the Spirit for all eternity. And if you are someone who is probably most of us here who has already repented, if Jesus is your King and you are baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and Spirit, do you remember that day when you were pierced to the heart when you first repented? Do you remember the conviction? Do you remember how your life began to change from that day forward when you gave yourself to Jesus as King? Continue to be changed. Continue to live with Jesus as your Lord and King. And we won't look at it, but in the final verses of this chapter, those who repented, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to prayer. And I'll finish with this. But uh, Phil and I say this all the time uh, as we preach. But these are the means of God's grace to us. His word, each other, and prayer. And that's what it looks like to have Jesus as your king. We devote ourselves to knowing Jesus by God's word. We remind each other of the kingship of Jesus because sometimes we forget and we lose our zeal. And so we help each other to to live in light of the king, to live in light of the kingdom of Jesus, to live for him. And because we have the one king, well, then we're devoted to each other because we have the one father in heaven, the one king. We're committed to one another in fellowship. And because Jesus is king over everything, we devote ourselves to prayer because we know things are not ultimately in our control. We, we, We don't know the affairs of the kingdom like the king does. And so we pray and we ask for his help. We depend on him. You see, Acts chapter 2 is an incredible part of the history of all creation. It's the event that declares once and for all that Jesus, that man from Nazarene, is both Lord and King. And it marks the day when God's Spirit came into the world to dwell with his people. And it changes everything. And that's fact. My question is, do we realize how significant that is? Well, let me pray that we might.
Well, Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the God who keeps his promises. We thank you that you did send Jesus into the world to do all those things that you promised he would do. We thank you that you exalted him to your right hand and he now reigns as king over everything, including us. And we pray, Father, that we might just grasp how significant that is, that there is one king over all things for all eternity. And we pray that we might live for him. And on that day when he comes back to take us home, that we might be full of joy because we love this king and live for this king. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.